0: This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. And people say astrophysics is really simple. Do people say that? People say that (laughs)
1: astrophysics is really simple? I'd like to meet these people. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, a listener shares a story of the sometimes circuitous path to a PhD and why persistence matters. Stay with us.
2: And we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 169. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman, and we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan. Are you staying warm down there in North Carolina?
1: Yeah, I'm fine. And it looks to me like you are actually in a house, Josh. I am so excited for
2: you. (laughs) Yes, I'm coming to you live from uh, Hello PhD Studio North, I guess we'll call it.
1: Yeah, fantastic. How how Have you gotten settled in? Is it everything you hope for?
2: Yeah, getting settled in. The kids are in school. Uh, It is noticeably colder here uh, than it was in North Carolina, but I think maybe that could just be timing that we're in the middle of kind of a mid-Atlantic cold snap right now. Well,
1: hopefully you are able to keep warm. I do know one major change for you, Josh, is that ethanol is a little tougher to come by. Is that true?
2: Yeah. I I naively uh, walked into the grocery store with my grocery list. And on the list was uh, beer and wine. And I discovered quickly that you cannot purchase beer or wine in the grocery store here in the good state of Maryland. So I am slowly figuring out where to procure my ethanol. So um, on my end, we might have to forgo the ethanol section of the podcast this week until I figure out how to get some.
1: Yeah. And and you and I are going to probably have more trouble coordinating the same variety each week. Uh, We'll have to plan this more in advance. If listeners have suggestions for great things to try, uh, send them our way because we're going to have to put together a list, I guess, and and go to our respective establishments. I can go to the grocery
2: store. Uh, You may not be able to do that. I will drive to North Carolina and buy, <laughs> buy ethanol. Hey, Dan, uh, based on your suggestion, uh, I watched the movie on Netflix, uh, Don't Look Up, last night.
1: And what was your verdict? I, I, I think I recommended it because it is very popular. I think it was the number two most watched movie in December or January for Netflix. So it's it's gotten wide viewership, but it's a pretty dark, satire. And I wanted to know what you thought.
2: Yeah, I I can say that I was engrossed and amused for the entire movie. Uh, I think sort of the dark comedy genre sort of hit the sweet spot of my own (laughs) my own sense of humor. Um, You know, I'm not we don't necessarily do movie recommendations on this podcast. But one reason that I bring it up here is I enjoyed that the central character of the show is a science PhD student.
1: Yeah, very exciting. The, the basic plot is that this science PhD student astronomer discovers a comet hurtling
2: toward Earth, and chaos ensues. We'll just say that. Yeah, and I, I'll have to say, Netflix just raised my rates, and it must be uh, to pay for all the talent they're pulling into their movies, because I just could not believe all of the, uh, the actors who were in this film. Uh, DiCaprio, Meryl Streep. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, unbelievable. Tyler Perry, Ariana Grande was in there, so I think that's why my Netflix subscription went up to twenty bucks a month.
1: Well, hopefully you enjoyed it, and uh, if people have watched it, let us know what you think. It is a portrayal of science, uh, science in the news. If anybody remembers that segment of our show, uh, so give it a li- give it a watch and let us know what you think.
2: Dan, can you think of any other films, popular films at least? where a science grad student was the central character. Not off the top of my head. Dan, we have some thank yous to that are in order. Uh, the first, I think we have some new new Patreon patrons this week.
1: Yes, we want to say thank you to Julia and to... Somebody who goes by the handle Degrees of Freedom, whose name we don't know, but we're very thankful, and uh, we'll see you both in the Slack channel.
2: Yeah, about that Slack channel, uh, I believe we've mentioned on the show before, but we have a, a Slack channel for our, our Hello PhD patrons, and full disclosure, over the last week or so, the Hello PhD Slack has basically become a Wordle Slack. Yeah, it, if you don't play
1: Wordle, which a lot of the people didn't, I think now we've gotten successfully addicted to it.
2: Yeah, so we will. So don't let that discourage you. If you are anti wordle we will uh, uh, do our best to stay on track uh, in the Slack channel. Um, Also, Dan, we want to say thank you as always to our friends at ProMega. It's the time of year when many of us realize graduation is right around the corner. Whether you're continuing in your academic journey or looking for opportunities outside of academia, make sure you have the tools and skills you need to find the right next step. From job interviews to individual development plans, the ProMega Student Resource Center is your go-to guide to navigate those tough decisions. You can visit promega.com/hello phd to learn more.
1: And with that, Josh, let's get on with the interview.
2: All right, Dan. So, this interview uh, came about because we got an email from Alexandra who had listened to the show and was telling us a little bit about her path. Um, but Dan, tell me tell me what led you to, to reach out and, and do this interview.
1: Yeah. So, Alexandra emailed us a few questions back in March 2021, and we answered one of them in a listener mailbag. But at that time, she was applying to PhD programs and asked some questions about applications and things like that. Uh, a year later, she... Emailed again with a a story update and some advice for listeners who were going through the same process. And I thought, well, anybody who has just gone through this application process and has some advice, I would like to talk to them, let the listeners hear directly from a grad student, somebody who's going through through it right now, who's applying, who's trying to determine which programs are right for them. And I just thought she had so much wisdom to share that I wanted to talk to her.
2: Yeah, that sounds great. And One thing I wanted to share about this interview at the outset is we talk a lot on this show about the challenges that grad students face during their training. And sometimes a topic that we we might neglect or overlook is the fact that a lot of people, many people, actually face a lot of challenges and, and setbacks on their journey to even get to the PhD program. And Alexandra talks about faced, I think, a laundry list of of common challenges that people face when pursuing um, even getting to a PhD program. So hopefully some of our listeners might connect with some of these challenges that she faced and some of the ways she navigated them. All right.
1: Well, here's my interview with Alexandra. Today, I am joined by Alexandra Batnariuk And Alexandra, welcome to Hello PhD.
0: Hi, and thanks for having me.
1: Tell the audience where we are reaching you today. What what city and country?
0: Um, I'm currently living in Göttingen in Germany.
1: And you and I got in touch. You had emailed the podcast a few questions maybe about a year ago and told us a little bit of your story. And I just found the story compelling, fascinating, terrifying, joyful. And I wanted you to have a chance to tell everybody the story in your own words, So if we could start back toward the beginning, you went to undergrad and you chose to study physics. How did you come to that decision?
0: So I think it was pretty obvious when I was in school that I was really inclined to do mathematics and I was doing well in mathematics. Somewhere in seventh grade when they started teaching you physics, I just fell in love with it. And I was always worse at physics than at mathematics, but I liked it more because of the challenge. And that led me to want to study physics, even if it wasn't um, my forte. So it was amazing when I got the chance to study physics at uh, the University of Cambridge, and I was really happy and thrilled and ready to learn everything there is. But towards the end of my undergraduate, I realized I have not thought about the next step. If I were to stay in academia or to get a job and what I should be doing to do that and if I was at all prepared.
1: And, and so you considered a Ph.D., As you were graduating, you were maybe in your last year and thinking about next steps. And and PhD was high on your list, wasn't it?
0: Actually, I didn't come from a very rich family. So I got a scholarship to attend university, and I also got a student loan. So finance was one of the things I was thinking about. At that point in undergraduate, I wasn't sure if the PhD was at all funded, if it covered more than living costs. It was common knowledge that you should have a master's degree before applying for a PhD. And my peers, I mean, I've heard from multiple peers and professors that only the best get to do a PhD. And they strongly discouraged every student from doing a PhD, as this was another obstacle you had to cross just the 1% of best students get to do a PhD. And uh, this influenced me, even if it shouldn't. I was influenced by this word of mouth, so to say.
1: It creates instant imposter syndrome. Uh, if you say that 1% of the students at Cambridge University, one of the greatest universities in the world, are going to go on and do this thing. How can you look at yourself and say, I'm the, per- I'm the 1%? Uh, that's, that's nearly impossible to have that kind of confidence in yourself.
0: One of my colleagues pointed out that there's a limited, um, there are limited places for doing a PhD, and we are we were 600 in our first year doing physics, but this was also from the other uh, triposes from natural from the natural sciences from the computer science and from mathematics, so that we're taking the physics 1A course. But I didn't think of this. I was thinking we're are 600 of us and maybe 10 PhD places. I guess there are more. But this was my thinking at the time Um, at this university. So if everybody's trying to do a PhD here, what are my chances?
1: So at that point, you said the mountain seems too high. Financially, it would be difficult to get a master's first. And it doesn't seem like there's a place for me. So what was your backup plan at that time?
0: I was just trying to get through exams and I was thinking, maybe I'll try for a job. I would like to continue with physics. This is what I love. And I got to an email that was distributed to all of the students for a research position for a young undergraduate at a particle accelerator facility in the UK. And I applied and I was very surprised when I got an interview. Amazing. Yeah, I went there and the interview went really well. I was a bit overwhelmed, fascinated with the huge building, all the scientists. Everything was brand new. And we were talking a bit about the physics and he was happy with it. And then he, uh, the interviewer asked me, do you know how to program in Python? And my answer was no, because in the last three years of the undergraduate, all that we were doing was basically catching up with theory and making sure that we know all of physics when we graduate, but not actually having any skills of how to use this.
1: So the, the training was all theoretical, but the, the particle accelerator lab wanted you to be able to write code to contribute to their research. So the answer then was no. They, they said, we love your physics knowledge. Uh, you'd be a good fit, but you need more programming experience.
0: Oh, yeah, I think they were looking for this um, hypothetical unicorn of uh, an entry level job with five years of experience,
1: yeah, in programming <laughs> not going to happen. but but this must have been a a pretty big setback. I mean, you loved physics. You wanted to be there. how did you How did you take that news?
0: I was a bit disappointed that mm-hmm. I couldn't continue, but at the same time, I knew I hadn't planned ahead and applied to PhD or PhDs or looked thoroughly into master studies available. I was doing my finals. I didn't have that much time to do so. And I was constrained by finances. My um, accommodation was ending after the exams and I had to go back home because I couldn't afford it all to stay for another month in the UK. So I thought I'd go home and reconvene. Um, also, another thing that happened is that even at the time in the UK, you needed a, a work permit to work, even as a EU citizen. And I applied for one and I didn't get it because I was too, as I was a student and I think their thinking was I shouldn't be working. And uh, so I couldn't work in the UK and I couldn't stay. So I thought I'd go home and reconvene and just recover.
1: <laughs> you went back home to Romania and search for jobs and what type of jobs were you looking for at that time?
0: At that time I was thinking I didn't expect this ending at all. I just finished my degree in physics at a very prestigious university and I have no perspective for the future. I knew that in Romania the research facilities in physics were limited I found, I think, one open position in sort of nuclear physics research, which wasn't very well paid and also it wasn't my interest. I wasn't very interested in nuclear research. And I found a lot of job openings for computer science. So after after looking at my options and stepping off my high horse, I found an entry-level job at a startup that was growing at the time and had just opened a new branch in my hometown. And I went for an interview and they hired me. And at first I wasn't earning anything (laughs) because I was training, but it grew rapidly. So I started rapidly learning, gaining more responsibility, working on projects, making money for the company, getting a a bigger paycheck, and uh, after four years, I think I was a team leader for um, a couple of people and a people manager. It was it was um, it was good times,
1: <laughs> and and that gave you a ton of experience and skill. But four years, it probably felt like a long time to be away from this dream that you had, this goal of being in physics. And so what made you decide to leave that?
0: Yeah, in the beginning, I was having a lot of fun, you know, the startup atmosphere, lot of young people, new ideas, learning um, new stuff. It was challenging every day. But at one point I was feeling that there's not enough purpose in what I do. And I was really missing this because the um, things that we were doing were very commercial. And also computer science was not my passion. So neither of of these two things fulfilled my life, so to say. And I seriously started thinking that, okay, I have these programming skills now that I didn't have four years ago that could have helped me land this job. And I want to do something with physics, but I don't necessarily want to go back to this (laughs) particle accelerator, and tell them, give me, give me the job now. Uh, probably didn't exist. And I thought, what can I do? And more importantly, what I want to do with these two things. And I decided that, okay, if I wanted to pursue a PhD in research, I first have to get a master's. And the master's that most attracted me now was a combination of computer science and physics, and I was thinking more about simulations, that would be something interesting. I've always thought about you know, doing the simulation and getting an answer of how the world would work. That would be amazing. And I found, I think, five, five specific master's degrees in Europe on computer simulations. Four of them were in Germany. So and one was in Sweden, and I decided to go for the German ones because there are more chances, there are four of them. And I applied. And I got two positive answers. And in the meantime, I met my then boyfriend and now husband. And he also wanted to go to Germany. So it was a stroke of luck, so to say. And we decided we would try. He just finished university. He's just finished medicine. And wanted to work as a doctor in Germany. And we decided we'd try and find jobs near each other. I ended up doing my master's in Rostock at Rostock University. Yeah, and he found a job in another coastal town in northern Germany. And it was like a um, three-hour drive or three-hour train ride. And we said, it's going to work. And it did. It was really nice. I enjoyed it. And I think it then started to be a good fit because... I don't regret going into programming. I really enjoyed programming and I found something I didn't, I, I didn't think of before as a possible job.
1: So, so you had been four years with the software company. How long did the masters take?
0: Um, the masters took another two years, yeah. Um, and before I started my master, I switched my company to one that allowed me to work remote and I worked also during my master's part-time, so that was really good. It was also an extra income.
1: That's a, that's a great tip for people out there that are following in the same path that you followed. You were able to overlap the time and also have some income while you were getting that master's degree.
0: <laughs> no, when I was finishing my master's degree, I for the final year, you have to do a um, project. And for my project, I went back and thought of what I would really like to do, which is apply to astrophysics, apply my programming skills to astrophysics type problems, if possible. And astrophysics for me has been like a a secret dream. I've never told anyone that when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut because it was so precious to me. I didn't want them to find out and spoil it. So I thought that if nobody knew what they really wanted, it couldn't spoil this dream. but actually it kept me a bit from going for it. So I decided, um, you know, all the physics is nice and people say astrophysics is really simple and it's not quantum physics. Do people but... say that? <laughs> people say that
1: astrophysics is really simple. I'd like to meet these people.
0: <laughs> I, I've, I've heard this it's, it's, uh, Among,
1: I, yeah. I suppose compared to quantum physics perhaps but it is something that you had as a child been fascinated by, been passionate about for your whole life
0: yeah and I, I've also thought that you know everybody loves space, and this is not something that's unique so
1: so you wanted to study astrophysics, were there opportunities for you
0: I looked for. A possible place to do my master's thesis and my thinking was maybe i can find something in the city that my husband is working in and i can convince the professor to do a collaboration with the professor from the university of rostock and i found professor sebastian Vult from the university of kiel which was doing some simulations on protoplanetary disks and teaching stellar evolution i found it very interesting and i wrote an email to him and i said look i want to do my master's thesis in your group can i do this and he said immediately oh yes uh, we have a place you can come talk to us we have to do some simulations when you're doing your master's you are sort of offering some free work um, to the professors and they are they are excited to take you i was lucky because i chose a topic that was astrophysics in the city where my husband worked i was seeing the professor very often i think every two weeks and I had a P, some PhD students to talk to. But I felt very stressed, you know, writing a thesis. And as I was going along, I wasn't sure where I was going with the thesis and doing plots and they were not working out. And I feeling pressured that I have some plots for the next meeting, which was misguided at that moment in time, but I didn't know better. So I was thinking, who does a PhD thesis? Who wants to feel so stressed and gloomy for (laughs) three years of their lives?
1: Everybody listening is Um, is who. That's the answer.
0: (laughs) um, But I really like the group. And at the end of my thesis, I have a a talk with um, the professor. And he had a, a PhD position open. And he sort of hinted that I should apply. That was the whole hint, just apply. But I talked to him, you know, about finances and having kids. But I was thinking about starting a family. I was already, I think, 28. And um, I was thinking this is not the kind of job security I need for having a baby. (laughs) So I started looking at other jobs which had had to do with science and programming. And I found a bioinformatician position. The bioinformatician position was interesting because I haven't done it before. And also it was an offer. (laughs) And I thought, why not?
1: Um... But it's great that you were looking, even as you were finishing the master's thesis, you were already trying to line up the next steps. All too often, people wait. And they, they're so focused on, on finishing that document, that thesis, that once it's done, they look around and they say, I'm, I'm done, now what? And they have no idea. And then they start a six-month process or a year process of trying to find something. And much better to start early.
0: I'd done that already in my undergraduate when I was just preparing for exams. And so I had already learned that lesson that it's very difficult, but it would be more difficult when you don't have any perspective.
1: That's right. There's a time element. There, there's waiting. They're sending things out and waiting for them to come back. And if you can front load that, put that in while you're studying, uh, it's all the better for you later. And I think, it all, I don't know if you had this experience, but for me, having a job lined up after... I, I hadn't graduated yet, but I had a job lined up and that helped motivate me to get done and get out because otherwise you can, oh, I could just do these three other figures or I could just do this. And when you have a job waiting on the other end, you don't have time for any of that. You need to get done.
0: Yeah. When you have a, a job, there's a, some hope that it will be better afterwards, uh, even if you don't know what's coming, but that hope helps you.
1: And so you must have been during this time been thinking about that PhD and and applying again. Is that did you start looking at that?
0: So the reason, one of the reasons I decided to go for a stable job was because I wanted a baby, and I got pregnant, and
1: (laughs) I. That'll change some plans.
0: I gave birth, and then uh, while I was starting sort of my maternity leave my one-year contract ended and then it was a, an opportunity to think again I was thinking about doing a PhD but you know the the, um, the, the disadvantages were still there like uh, finances uh, long hours job insecurity they were still there but I think one thing that changes when you have a baby is that Suddenly, there's a huge responsibility upon you, and it's not just, you know, in (laughs) keeping him alive or in good health. Um, It's also, you think about setting an example. Yeah, you know, being financially stable and having a, a good future together and a home and living together made me reconsider doing a PhD because I thought. This is what I really want to do, even if people are telling me it's hard, you shouldn't do it, uh, you didn't have the best grades, you are too old, there are all these things that are wrong. But what example will I be searching if I don't go for it?
1: And, and so did you start applying at that point? I mean, raising, raising a child, and especially a young baby, is three full-time jobs. <laughs> so how did you find time to think about applications and things like that?
0: I, when he was sleeping, I was Googling. <laughs> yeah, it was really, um, I would say, a tiresome period where you don't get a lot of a sleep. And you also, as a mother that gave birth, you have that period after birth where your hormones are out of whack and you certainly can't concentrate and you feel that maybe I've gone stupid and I can't do physics anymore, but it will come back. It's It's okay.
1: <laughs> so the baby sleeps, you're Googling, filling out applications. How many places did you apply?
0: I think I tried to assess all the places in Germany I could go to. And this time I made an Excel and I included stuff that now I knew was important for me, like climate, job opportunity, sort of index for both of us. If there's schools, kindergartens, um And other factors that we we chose. And again, we had a list of a couple of 20 or so cities that we both thought we could move to. And I started applying again in these cities. um, I started looking for job openings and PhD positions and following them. And, you know, it wasn't exclusive. When something appeared in another city, I would consider it and say, okay, is this topic so interesting that I would consider this city, or is it not far away from another one?
1: But they're complex multi-factor decisions. This is... You're trying to assess the the choices on 10 different factors, or 20 different factors, who even knows? Plus, they also have to accept you. So... This is a very complex decision space.
0: But it was clear to me, because I already worked in a startup and enjoyed it, that, and from one of your episodes, that maybe an institute would be a better fit for me because it's a mix. Um, It's not that stiff as a university, I would say. And it has more more modern facilities and it has a collaborative feel to it, and there's more people.
1: You didn't want yeah. to be alone in a basement writing code by yourself, you know, checking yeah, or in, in at an attic. and out at 4 p.m., yes. And, and, and that came from experience, that came from having those other jobs and finding out how you like to work.
0: Yeah, so um, I started making a list, but this has to fit also with my husband's list of places you would apply to. And the problem is, the PhD application takes a long time and um, applying for a job is usually quick because somebody is interested in hiring you and he needs somebody to get a job done. So he got his answers a lot faster than me.
1: So that means he needs to make a decision before you can make a decision.
0: Yeah. Three. And because I've already had, uh, had three interviews that seem to go well with different research groups in uh, Göttingen decided we will move and hope for the best.
1: And I think this is where you first emailed, and at that moment you had moved to the city, uh, but you didn't exactly have a position secured, uh, but but your husband did.
0: I had my my first interview. I had had two interviews and one of the professors was involved in both of them as um, was a contributor to one research group and then was also professor at the university and was also working at an institute, so he had more um, PhD uh, programs. And uh, the feedback was that the interview went really well. So I was very hopeful that I had, I had now two possible positions. So if one of them worked out, I would be fine. And I was, we moved and then I was invited to an interview week. So that was good. Usually the expectation is that you will get an offer if you go to the interview week. Yeah. And we, we decided to make this move and I was listening to your podcast while I was walking the baby uh, so he was sleeping in the afternoon, 3 to 4 p.m. And I was listening to an episode of Hello PhD and really considering my decision. Because even before I <laughs> I decided to apply, I was listening to your podcast. And it made it easier to to have a starting point and know what to look for. And before I went to the interview week, actually, I I started sending some emails and talking to current students. And they were very willing. They were all willing to share their experience. But uh, thanks to your podcast, I had a list of questions. So um, I asked them, what's the supervision style? How often they see the supervisor? Because I knew that in my master thesis, this bi-weekly meeting worked out well. It motivated me and also gave me some feedback. And I thought, if the supervisor doesn't answer your email in three months, then that's not a good fit for me.
1: A great, That'd be a great insight to have before you commit.
0: Yes. And what happened is that I got all these red flags responses from students that supervisor is unresponsive. You don't have meetings with him. You're on your own. You're left to fend for yourself. And I still thought it's a good position. <laughs> and I still thought I'll, I'll apply. <laughs> and in my interview week, it was really nice to know more people, More than one person is involved in organizing this. It was online because of the pandemic. And we got, you know, a nice tour and some nice information. And at some point, we got an email that we had to schedule ourselves interviews with the group leaders that we are interested in and talk to them about research. And that this would be a great influence to our application So this was from one day to the the next and I had a small baby at home. My husband was already working and I didn't have a babysitter that could come at any time yet. So I figured, again, hope for the best. What can I do? I just wrote an email to one of the professors telling him, you know, I could do 12 to 1 or 3 to 4 p.m. when the... Baby is hopefully sleeping. And I've had success with this method. But what happened uh, once was uh, that he, he the uh, group leader could only do a certain time. And I said, you know what, I'll take the baby for a walk. And usually he doesn't make any sound uh, or he sleeps. And even if he's not sleeping, headphones. he's probably going to be. Yeah, and talk on my headphones. I also, there's like a, a, a cell phone holder for your car. I duct taped that to my pram and I put my phone there.
1: <laughs> so you're on a walking Zoom meeting.
0: Yes, I was on a walking Zoom meeting. But my baby, for whatever reason, decided to to have a fit. And while he was asking me a trick physics question, the baby was screaming <laughs> and I was thinking, this guy is trying to test me, but I got the right answer and I was proud well, of not. myself in that moment. He was visibly annoyed by the baby. And I also, by talking to other students, found out that he doesn't have a family, so probably doesn't uh, truly appreciate what it's like.
1: It's hard to understand until you've been through it, uh, until, you, until you raise small children. you You don't have the same... I guess empathy or equanimity toward the things that happen with babies.
0: Yeah, um, and I, and later, you know, I found out that he was probably the one that could have given me an offer, maybe from word of mouth of bad students, uh, based on my skills. So again, by luck, <laughs> bad luck, maybe it happened that I didn't get. Any offers, And what also happened that year is that the, um, a good thing at the beginning of the year, it was decided that PhD students in Germany at Max Planck Institutes in general uh, are obligated to earn 65% of um, normal salary, which is very good for the students. But, you know, research grants are limited in money. So that meant right. they took fewer students that year. And this also influenced the other offers because they had to match those, you know, to be competitive. So almost all offers were now 65% instead of 50%. Yeah, but that meant less students. So bad luck for me and I didn't get any offers.
1: So here you are moved to a new city on the hope that one one of two or three programs would work out. You just found out that, that due to circumstances with financing and also with maybe the, the researcher's view of you having a baby and, and trying to... I, tug-
0: I wouldn't say that. I would say the bad timing of the baby screaming the baby combined screaming, with the sure. short notice.
1: But you're in this new city without the thing that you went to that city for. And so at this point, do you just quit and call it a day? Um
0: what I learned from your podcast <laughs> was to then apply for internships and I did that and I um, wrote to the people that interviewed me and asked them, you know, elder internship for free and they didn't get back to me at all and I realized then that maybe this was a blessing in disguise because This was what my PhD would have been like with them not answering. And this is not my supervision style. But I emailed other, I started emailing other professors that I maybe overlooked because I was already having so many interviews. (laughs) And um, I found a great professor at the university that was studying also stars, brown dwarfs. And he said, he's sorry, he already gave his PhD positions, but he could give me an internship. He was very gracious. We talked on uh, Zoom and he offered to find some student money, even if I offered to work for free and prepared a contract. And I think I had already signed this contract. But in the meantime, I started my second round of uh, applications. But now I was looking off-season, so for things that were not in the, the traditional application rounds uh, in winter. And I found a good good offer. It was in a city one hour away, and I was concerned about the commute time and having a baby and taking him to daycare. I didn't know how that would work. But I was hopeful that because of the pandemic, this would be more accessible or people would be used to working from home by now and it wouldn't be a big deal. And then the baby would be older.
1: And so you didn't end up needing that internship, but you did get into a PhD program. Is that right?
0: I got an offer. So I applied. um I wasn't sure if I wanted to apply. I had so many, um how would I put it? I started also from your podcast, reading this book. Ah, we don't see it. the early career researcher. Yes. And during my application, I sort of decided on what I what my goal was, what I wanted to do researching. And this particular topic was tangential. And I was thinking, this is good. This could be good for me. But what if they convince me to just focus on the research. I'm sure they will make me fall in love with this research and I will forget forget about my goal. (laughs) So this was another concern that I had, had. But I can tell you the interview was different than any other interviews. So it was quick, painless, and I thought I did minimal effort and they were impressed. So I was sort of doubting what happened afterwards.
1: Sounds amazing.
0: Yeah the other interviews were were not as painless were they more sort of adversarial they were
1: testing you and and trying to Yeah I had
0: I had the feeling that they were either not listening or testing me or maybe they were really busy they had a lot of candidates one interviewer send me an email that said, you have an interview scheduled at 9.15. You have exactly 15 minutes. Your presentation should be exactly 10 minutes. We have five minutes for discussion.
1: That tells you something, doesn't it?
0: Yes, they are very busy. Yeah, so this was, I gathered some experience on the way and they sort of afterwards came back and it was very quick. I actually didn't have to wait months. In a week, they made me an offer. And at that point, I said I wanted to discuss some things about commute time and all the worries that I had. And my supervisor, or the, the supervisor, was very happy to answer all of the questions. And actually gave me a deadline for the answer. And I waited up until the day before the deadline to answer. It was a tough decision.
1: Uh, because this was going to be a, a PhD program that you wanted, but it was an hour by train for, and I think you agreed to yes. three days a week, you said. It's not an easy decision.
0: But it worked out in end, And I took it and I'm so happy I took it because after I took it, I found out that uh, they're amazing and the director of the institute he said he doesn't have time to talk and we talk every week <laughs> um i don't know how he does it and i talk to my supervisor twice a week and i love what i'm doing um my supervisor did tell me uh, when he made me an offer sort of with an embarrassed voice that you know 80 percent of this phd is actually programming Um, And this is a a disadvantage for most students, I guess, who are looking for a PhD because they want to, to, I don't know, read papers, write papers. I don't know what they are looking for. But I was so happy. I said, this is also a must for me because I know I want to be programming at least 50% of the time.
1: It's amazing. And so you've been at it for six months now. Is that right? Something like that?
0: i've passed the six months i think seven months now okay
1: but you're but you're well into it and and tell people where you are and and what you're studying because i think it, it's such a beautiful culmination of this story that you've told of of where you where you dreamed of being all the obstacles but here you are finally tell them, tell everybody what you're what you're studying.
0: So I'm doing my uh, PhD in uh, astrophysics and searching for pulsars with Einstein at home at the Max Planck Institute for Gravitational Physics in Hanover, also called Albert Einstein Institute. Yeah, we are are searching for um, all types of pulsars uh, in our group. We have some data from the Arecibo telescope, which is yet to be searched. We are running a volunteer-based computing system.
1: Yeah, I wanted um, I wanted you to talk about this. Our listeners can help your research, which I think is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, they can go to home.org and they can sign up to volunteer some of their CPU time for computations. So what basically happens is there are different telescopes. It's... Arecibo or Fermi in in space, that um, they're constantly gathering data and looking. And we want to find pulsars, but we don't know where they are, uh, at what frequency they are spinning, and how far they are. This is also important. And a, a bunch of other parameters. And basically, what you can do when you don't know this is just try all the different solutions. It's, it's not a hard problem, but it takes a lot, a lot of trials. So it's one of those embarrassingly paralyzable problems. And basically you get some data and you get a sort of parameter set that you search for and your computer does the calculation if there is a pulsar with such and such parameters there. And it gives back a number of parameters, but one of them... Uh, indicates how strongly he believes that there is a pulsar there. And then we gather the best results and then we have to look at them again and decide if there is a a pulsar there. And still we have something like 20,000 beams and we have also on the order of thousands of probable candidates for those beams. So... Even after you have already with your computer, say, searched all the possible pulsars, we still have to sort through a lot of candidates. And that's what I want to do in my my thesis, uh, the first part, find a, a better way to search through the probable candidates and reduce them even more.
1: And so this this runs on my computer in the background. I don't actually have to search through data myself. It, this is just a program that runs. And then if my yeah. computer finds a Pulsar, I get some sort of certificate. Right?
0: You get a diploma. Yes. Fantastic. If we find a Pulsar and you publish it, you get a certificate. It has the Pulse profile of the Pulsar, which is like a fingerprint. And it's signed by Professor Bruce Allen and a some other collaborators, and you get it delivered to your home in English and in your native language, or twice in English, <laughs> and you can display them—one in your office, one at home.
1: It's amazing, and if—and if, and if my computer finds one, I would like your signature on it as well. We'll have to arrange that somehow. <laughs> Well, I, I have to say, I am elated for you. There were there were periods of time when you would email and I'd be very nervous for you, um, you know, being in this new city and being on a waiting list or hoping for a position that wasn't there. And I thought to myself, this, you know, hopefully this works out, but at the time I didn't know and I was very nervous, um, but I'm just so thrilled for you and, and so excited for what the next few years bring. And then the career after that, I think you have a lot more adventures in store. But what you're showing is always have that backup plan or three backup plans. And and you're doing that. Alexander, thank you so much for sharing your story. I I really do think it's inspiring. Other people will have their own setbacks and and challenges, but you are proof that as long as you don't quit, uh, the story doesn't have to end.
0: Uh, thank you, Daniel. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I hope it works out for the best. You know the um, disadvantages are still there, but you have to think of I don't know what you want to do, and what gives you purpose in life, and also what you can do because given your circumstances. And if you if you push on those things, I think you you you'll get to to a good place. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, Dan, thanks for for doing that interview. You know, one thing that that jumped out at me from from earlier in your conversation was the imposter syndrome that that crept in. And you know, I feel like those of us who are involved in sort of leadership of these programs or of graduate programs or faculty This is something we need to be aware of and cautious of as we even just talk to interested students or talk to incoming students, especially, you know, I can remember Dan when you and I for, well, actually I can remember two, two things that stand out to me. And the fact that I still remember them probably shows how big of an impression they made. One was when I started undergrad and it was the very first day, it was like during orientation. And so they brought all the freshmen in and they actually said to us, well, we know most of you were probably in the top 10% of your class in high school, but obviously there's no way you can all be the top 10% of this class. (laughs) I was like, geez, uh, that's great. Uh, And then the other was, and we probably mentioned this on the show before, Dan, but when we were first-year graduate students and our program leader was having a conversation, I don't remember what kind of pep talk it was, but mentioned the fact that only about 50% of students in the program at that time actually completed the program. And I, I know she didn't mean it that way, but that was super demoralizing at the time as a first-year PhD student who had not considered the fact that we may not make it through.
1: Yet, it's really interesting because I don't think, like you said, I don't think those people considered that they were inflaming imposter syndrome. They weren't trying to do that necessarily. I think they were trying to maybe say, hey, this is going to be hard. You need to bring your game. But what it does is it makes people who are maybe on the edge of thinking they belonged in this program to think they definitely don't belong in this program. And uh, saying it to undergrads saying, you know, there are 600 of you in this class and there's only, I think Alexandra thought there were 10 PhD positions. Those notions kept her from applying at that time. Because it just seemed insurmountable, and and I really appreciate what you say, Josh, which is to be careful about your words. The
2: people you're disenfranchising
1: may be the people who need the most support.
2: Absolutely, Dan. What are some things that stood out to you about your conversation with Alexandra?
1: Well, I, I just thought uh, Alexandra's story was a grab bag of things that we've talked about on the show. You know, she's studying internationally. She has the financial constraints. She's facing the imposter syndrome, like you said. Um, She wanted to have a kid. We've talked about, can you have kids and go to grad school? She was getting ghosted by PIs. She was dealing with a two-body problem where she and her husband needed to move to the same place. Um, She was dealing with PhD pay scales and grant funding and all of these different factors that, you know, I I think this would affect individuals, maybe one or two of these things. And it just felt like it it all (laughs) happened at different times. You know, one of the things she was really concerned about when she w- wanted to go back was, am I too old? She was you know, 28 or 29 years old and had already had a career in the software industry. And she, she thought this thing that everybody thinks, which is, I can't go back now because I've already wasted, you know, I've lost that time. Uh, you need to be younger to go back. And so like all of these concerns and considerations were obstacles, but what I loved was, she always had a backup plan to her backup plan's backup plan, right? While she's while she's moved to this town to hopefully get into one of these two programs, she didn't happen to get in. So she's applying for internships and at the same time applying off-season to PhD programs. It's just like that that relentless pursuit of what she knew was her dream and not stopping. And by not stopping, she, she made it. She got into a PhD program and she loves it.
2: Yeah, and you know, some of those... As she was pursuing some of those backup plans and she was gaining new skills through these internships and employment, one thing that, that stood out to me was those were really useful skills and setting her on a possibly good direction for her plan B. You know, she could have, by the things she was doing, she could have easily pivoted to something different, another great career, um, if the grad school thing either didn't work out or if she just decided at some point along the way... As I'm, preparing to, as I'm preparing for graduate school, you know what, maybe I just want to do this. Um, it, that wasn't what she wanted to do. Um, but I think it's important to remember that gaining some of these experiences before you get into a PhD program can be really useful. Um, it can be really insightful, not just to get into a program, uh, but useful skills to help you once you get there. And maybe you decide, you know what, with these skills I have, I can go do this other thing that I might want to do instead of grad school.
1: Yeah, it's not going to hurt her that she had some experience managing a software project and managing a team of people, right? Those are, <laughs> are going to be great assets to have as she moves on. She had some more advice for students, and I wanted to just summarize a couple of her points just to highlight them one more time. One of the things she recommended, Josh, and you know I love this, was networking and sending emails. And she mentioned that she interviewed these current students and got really great insight. Uh, she said she chose to ignore that insight because she really wanted to get into the program, but she at least knew what she was getting into. Uh, but she also, she she mentioned that she sent a lot of emails and had contacts that didn't lead to anything. And, you know, we've talked about this before where you may have coffee with somebody and get you're not going to get a job from it, but you do have that contact and that contact introduces you to another contact. And so Having reaching out to those people and and making those connections, I think, really proved valuable to her because she has found mentors and future prospects through those connections uh, where people are making recommendations to her. So I think that was a really great skill that she put to use just by making those contacts, even outside of the direct, I'm applying to your lab. Um, And one more piece of advice that she had was that your background does matter. Uh, she said, I learned that if how old I was or the fact that I had a child was frowned upon by the interviewers, it meant that place was probably not a good fit for me and I'm actually better off not getting an offer. And I just thought that was really great. She she found a, a lab that fit and it's not in spite of these things or she's has a child or has a family or has to travel an hour by train to get there. It's because they were willing to accommodate because they had some of those challenges themselves.
2: Yeah, I think that advice and her experience is so important to remember because oftentimes I think as someone who is looking for a position, whether that's in grad school or postdoc or a job, you, if you're not careful, you can have this tendency to think that of your certain life experiences and your your needs for your own situation can be baggage and you can feel like there's this desire, I need to hide those things as I'm going through the process. It. And, and what you said is absolutely true. You can do that, but if those are realities of things you need to be successful and happy in a job, better to find out that your needs and that position are not compatible before you take the position than to get in the position and realize, oh, you know what? My boss is not at all sympathetic to being a working parent or, or I'm not this PI is not at all open to me getting teaching experience during my postdoc. Much better to know that ahead of time and miss out on that opportunity that would have actually been a really bad opportunity <laughs> for you in the long run. You know, Dan, one thing that that I think Alexander's story highlights really well is that there are many different paths to PhD programs. I think it can be really tempting for people, especially maybe you're going through your undergraduate training um, or you've just graduated, to think like, okay, if I want to go to grad school, I want to get my PhD I have to be ready to just immediately go do that to jump from undergrad right into grad school. And, and, you know, I admit I'm not super familiar with all the different fields and maybe there are different ways that, that different fields tend to operate. But I know in the biomedical sciences that I'm familiar with, um, it can be somewhat common for individuals to go straight from undergrad to grad school. If you've had the experience during undergrad, you and I both had that experience actually, Dan, um, But I can actually say that's not the most common experience even there. Um, You know, when I was running admissions for a large biomedical PhD program, 70% of our incoming class worked for one, two, multiple years uh, doing various things, gaining experience before coming into the PhD program, um, similar to Alexandra. So, So in some ways... Her story, while maybe unique given the number of challenges that, that she faced and overcame, um, it's not at all unique to have to go out, get some experiences, learn what you um, want to do, build some skills before you transition to grad school. Um, that's very common.
1: Great insight. And, and yeah, she is living proof that uh, sometimes a different path into the program is really a, an asset and not a liability.
2: All right, Dan. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to Alexander, and especially thanks to Alexander for reaching out to us, for sending in some of her experiences and some of her questions, um, and also for listening to the show. Uh, Throughout her interview and in her email, she mentioned multiple episodes and, and discussions we've had on the show in the past that were actually helpful as she navigated some of these issues and we will put a link to some of those episodes that she referenced in the show notes. If you want to take a look at those on your own.
1: That's right. And if other listeners have questions or topic ideas, we would obviously love to hear them. You can email us podcast at or send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons.
2: All right, Dan, always a pleasure. I'm hoping by the next episode, I will figure out how to get beer, and uh, maybe we can bring back the, the valiant return of the ethanol section
1: sounds good and, and maybe a movie review section but only movies where the grad student is a star
2: and if you know of movies where grad students are the star let us know we'll, we'll we'll give them a watch all right josh uh stay warm we'll see you next time see you next time